The guardrails are holding, and we may learn today who the president of the United States will be for the next four years. Attempts to steal the election don't seem to be working. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and Chris Ranowski, all of whom I'm hoping are well-rested after getting the night following the night of the election. Y'all ready to go? We're getting there. Raring. <laughs> You'll be raring to go come Saturday morning. All right. All right, let's begin. Tuesday's election results would seem to perk up Senator Rob Portman and Governor Mike DeWine, Republicans whose term ends in two years. We asked for a story about this, and I figured the prognosis would be pretty good. But Jane Cahoon, what's the actual prognosis here? It's not that good. <laughs> well, I thought Sabrina Eaton got a, a really interesting perspective on this. I mean, really, you got to believe that Portman, who was an early endorser of Trump and, and stuck with him throughout this whole tumultuous campaign, would have been happy to see this comfortable victory that Trump had in Ohio. And, and uh, you know, it's a sign that Ohio's firmly a red state and, and they we love our Republican incumbents, but, but, uh, you know, when, when they're up in, in for reelection for two years, um, they, well, what Sabrina found was that Trump's popularity here may actually lead to a far right primary challenge for, for Portman or DeWine or other Republican officials. And he said, you know, they're in a position to where they need to shore up their conservative credentials to to ward off a primary challenge. And, you know, she in particular mentioned Congressman Jim Renacci, who who was a big Trump supporter. He was going to run for governor two years ago, but instead he switched to the Senate race against Democrat Jared Brown and got beaten. And uh, but he's remained active. He's got a political nonprofit and he's been criticizing criticizing DeWine from the sidelines for you know, the gas tax increase and other things. And so, you know, there's speculation that he could he could challenge DeWine in a primary. And then uh, she also noted she's been watching the finances, the campaign finances of Jim Jordan, you know, perhaps Trump's biggest supporter in Congress and wondering what he might be considering for his next career move. He's raised an eye popping amount of money this cycle, more than 16 million. Um, and that's the sort of money you need for for a statewide campaign, as opposed to, you know, 1.3 million that he previously raised. So, you know, it, it was interesting to just think about, okay, what could happen? And, you know, another interesting factor is that, okay, who ends up in the White House? If it's Biden, there may be a midterm backlash against Democrats, and, and that would help, you know, people like Portman and DeWine. And so I joke here, but they might be secretly hoping that, that Trump ends up losing. But, uh, but we you know. could end up with a primary in which somebody like Jim Jordan or Renacci or even that guy Becker who's trying to get uh, DeWine arrested for the Looney Tune <laughs> from, from the legislature. They could be running against Portman and DeWine saying those guys are too liberal. I mean, think about that. It's <laughs> mind boggling that we could have campaigns that Mike DeWine and Rob Portman are too liberal for Ohio. And the scary thing is because of the way the primaries work in Ohio, that very likely would work that that a Jim Jordan could beat DeWine in a Republican primary 
And then given how red Ohio appears to be, waltz into the governor's office. You could have Jim <laughs> Jordan as governor of Ohio. It's I mean, you want to say that, oh, no, Jordan is so polarizing that he would never win statewide. But look at Trump's, you know, Trump is considered pol- polarizing, too. And he he so, easily uh, won Ohio. This is Chris Wernaski. So is Mike DeWine the Che Guevara of the Ohio Republican <laughs> Party now? Like, are we going to see that T-shirt? Like, what's going on? Or, or Chris, do do Portman and DeWine, worried about this, start doing things that are even more radically right than they've been? I mean, I don't know how much more right you could be. I mean, like, I mean, they tried to sneak in an abortion ban during the coronavirus pandemic. I, you know, I it, like I, I don't know. It's fascinating. I mean, it's it's you know now we're talking about not even. I mean, I mean the the sad fact is is that you're not talking about any sort of legitimate democratic challenge to either of these people right now. Like who is it going to be? So, so of course it's going to be a battle between the, uh, in the primaries, you know, I mean, you're seeing this in the democratic party across the country too, where, you know, suddenly there are calls for people like Dianne Feinstein and, and Nancy Pelosi to get primaried, which it will certainly be a test of their, their power and popularity. I think. Well, here's, here's the question. If if that were to happen, would the Democrats all start registering as Republicans to save Mike DeWine and Rob Portman? <laughs> I, I, this is Laura Johnston. Remember the um, Kasich primary that people were switching to? It was 2016, right? That people wanted to vote for Kasich over uh, Trump. I know. So you mean I, in the I presidential mean, primary? I, yeah, presidential primary. Democrats would be so petrified of a Jim Jordan or a Jim Renacci becoming the governor or the senator. I could see them registering to vote for Republicans who they think are too far to the right already. Anyway, fascinating story. Not what I expected we would hear. And, and a credit to Sabrina for putting it together. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Are we seeing a pro-Trump, anti-Trump rift right here in Cuyahoga County following Tuesday's election? Chris Ranowski, I guess the more fair question would be, are we seeing a red-blue line in Cuyahoga County? We know there's a red-blue line in Ohio that's that's generally urban and rural, but Mm -hmm. the results from Tuesday show, we have something right in our backyard. Yeah, there some things are changing. We we looked at the suburbs because Cleveland always sort of is reliably democratic. So the suburbs became this sort of monolithic uh, thing during the election that, that, you know, Trump said that he was going to come in and save all of our suburbs. And, and, you know, of course, one of the, the most important demographics that sort of shifted against him in this election were suburban women. <laughs> So it, I, one of the things that we thought was important was to look at this. So Eric Heisig and our data guru, Rich Exner, looked at this. And what was interesting is that Democrats are starting to sort of make some inroads in more affluent, uh, well-educated Western suburbs, which which he, they were they did pretty well in already. But but the high turnout sort of swung a, a couple of them to uh, to to Democrats. Um, but places like Parma and Brook Park um, that used to be reliable uh, sort of blue collar democratic communities that are now sort of adding to the uh, sea of red that's covering much of the southern part of the county. So, you know, it's interesting if you just look at the the map that Rich Exner put together, you know, it's dark blue in the center, uh, light blue around the edges. And then, you know, it's it's a little pink around, like around the far edges. So it's, you know, we're kind of and if you add like Lorraine and Lake County, it's just it's, you know, we're. 
you know, the Democrats sort of have the donut hole of Cleveland and and sort of the outlying places like Lakewood, Beachwood and, and stuff like that. What was really fascinating is if you break it down, he has a table at the bottom of the story that shows the percentage of votes that went to each candidate in, in respective communities. And Donald Trump only got a little more than 65 percent of the vote in one community. And, and there were multiple places where Biden got 65, 75, 85, and even 95% of the vote. So it's a really good story. I encourage people to go and check it out. Yeah. The, the and we should put it, Cuyahoga County is still very, very much Democratic. Mm-hmm. It was a two to one margin for Biden. Uh, and what I like, the story did also mention that the general makeup of the communities that did go for Trump in Cuyahoga County match what we saw elsewhere in the state with Mahoning County and Trumbull County, kind of that blue collar, lack of college education, white. I mean, Parma was is not the, the biggest surprise, but it but it is a little bit jarring when you look at that map that they put together. There is a red wall down in the southern part of Cuyahoga County that. I, I guess, you know, you knew it was there, but but until you see it graphically represented that way, you don't realize it. So and, and when we were talking about this online yesterday, Sabrina Eaton from our Washington Bureau was sending us some notes to point out, hey, Republican candidates have often appeared in places like Strongsville. Right, Jane Cahoon? Yeah, they've they've had some uh, big rallies there. That's a pretty reliably Republican suburb all along. I don't think it's a matter of flipping there. It must feel like for the people in Strongsville and Parma to be living there the way we feel in Cleveland living in Ohio, that you have no hope in hell of ever having real representation in your county government. All the judges are Democrat. The county executive will always be Democrat. And yet you have this Republican block that, you know, they got, I guess there's a couple of county council members, but that's such a useless body that it really doesn't mean anything. So it must, it must feel bad to know that, you you will never in your lifetime see representation on a county level of your party because and we know how that feels in Cuyahoga County because we're completely iced out in Columbus. Well, (laughs) but one of the things is that, you know, and and people were very sort of, you know, Trump had a fair warning that, you know, his his track of saying that he was going to come in and rescue the suburbs from all this low income housing or, or whatever you know, the kind of very obvious kind of racist dog whistle kind of stuff. You know, if Biden ends up winning this election, that's going to be one of the biggest sort of miscalculations of of his entire campaign, because, you know, clearly in in our area and, and in other parts of the country that are seeing sort of a similar sort of shift in where people are living and, and the demographic, I, you know, I, I mean, it's pretty much the same case everywhere else around every other major city where the suburbs have pretty much come back to the Democrats. So, you know, it it's interesting how how much this sort of pendulum swung back the other way and, and how if he does lose this election, it's going to be, you know, you could point to that being where he may have made the biggest misstep. All right, I'm going to get into a little bit of dangerous territory here and keep it going. We keep pointing out that Trump won with people who don't have college educations. And when you then look at the map in the communities that Rich and Eric dealt with, you look at the Solons of the world, which has some of the highest education levels going in the county, and they're heavily for Biden. So is this really about education versus uneducated? Uneducated people are going for Trump. I had I got a 
I got a series of emails through this campaign from people who think we're idiots because we're in the media. And, and one was very stated it very clearly. You all think you're smart in your newsroom, Mr. Quinn, because of your college educations. I don't have a college education, but I'm way smarter than you or anybody in your newsroom. My experiences in my life have made me smart. And that's why I know and you don't know that Donald Trump is the best leader this country has ever had. It was it was one of the most condescending long notes that I got. But is that the divide that we have in this country, that it's educated versus uneducated? And I am using those terms because to use other words would be insulting. I think one of the underlying things that the Democratic Party doesn't recognize is how how it lost those voters, like people. I mean, I think you're right. I think there is a very definitive line between people who are educated and people who are uneducated. I mean, Donald Trump does really well among white men with no college education. That's, I mean, what is that? That's blue, you know, that's what we used to define as blue collar and, and working class. I mean, those are Sherrod Brown's people. You know, those are, those are the sort of old Sherrod Brown Democrats that, you know, that, that he appeals to and that he, he still appeals to in some ways. And, and so I think, you know, well, let me interrupt you. So do you think that rift has always been there, that the educated versus uneducated has been a trend in American politics for a long time? Or is it being much more heavily reinforced by this election? No, I think what happened was I, I think at one point that that was a very reliable block of voters for Democrats. And for whatever reason, they've sort of abandoned that, that they have they've walked away from that and they have allowed I mean, that's where that's where all of this sort of populism comes from is 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 that Trump was able to capture something. I mean, it could have been anybody. It just happened to be Donald Trump. You know, somebody came along and saw this disaffected, you know, this disaffected group of American people who are, you know, who who don't have college educations, who have have suffered because of a lot of trade agreements and things like that. And they exploited it, you know, and, and I know there, I know people are going to buck at the idea that they've been exploited, but I mean, that is kind of what happened because, you know, it's not like he came in and did a lot of policy that, that worked in their interest, but, you know, but, but, but if you go over to Lordstown and, you know, you see this electric car plant that, or this electric truck plant that's, that's humming now. And, you know, they feel like he, sort of did good by them and it and it's reflected in the voting. And I think two things have to happen here. One, I think the Democrats have to be really wary of assuming that minority voters are going to vote for them because they really kind of dropped the ball in in appealing to the the Latino vote. I mean, there is a legitimate criticism of 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 this sort of appealing to only elites kind of idea. That notion that's easy to exploit that that the Democrats have kind of lost their way. I think that's you know I think part of the reason that Joe Biden was their candidate this year is because he was the closest they had that appealed to that. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Is political polling dead following another very public failure in this year's presidential election? I've said I feel like Charlie Brown and pollsters are Lucy <laughs> with the football. We said four years ago we would never trust them again because they got it so wrong. And somehow, somehow they all lulled us back into complacency. We all bought it. We all reported it. And we were all wrong again. Jane Cahoon is polling dead. 
Well, it might not be dead, but it's sure going to get another autopsy. It, uh, it was wrong all over the place. And, and here in Ohio, the, the polls repeatedly showed that this would be a toss-up state. I don't think I saw a single Ohio presidential poll that was outside the margin of error. They either showed a narrow win for President Trump or a narrow win for Joe Biden. And in fact, as we know, it wasn't even close with, with Trump defeating Biden here by eight points and repeating his 2016 performance. So, and then we saw nationwide, you know, overall it was considered to be a relatively easy win for Biden with, with multiple paths to the presidency. And here we are with no result because it's, it's so close. But you, you probably remember after the last presidential election when, when Trump was considered to score this upset victory over Hillary Clinton and everybody said, well, what, what's up with all the polling that, that showed Clinton was a shoe in. So people like our friends at, at, at Baldwin Wallace tried to figure out, you know, what went wrong to avoid those errors of, of 2016. And, and that year they, um, they had shown Clinton leading by Trump, leading Trump by eight points in Ohio in the final weeks. But we talked to Tom Sutton about this at VW and he said, you know, they gave extra weight this year to harder to reach voters who tend to support Trump, like white voters without college degrees, especially those from rural areas. And, you know, posters had been struggling with with the challenge of also just getting voters to answer the phone. And, and that's really costly and time consuming. So BW um, now conducts its polls online. But this year, you know, their final poll showed Trump leading Biden, I think, by two points, like a statistical toss up, uh, as I said. But anyway, it looks like the public polls overestimated Biden's support in, in suburban areas while failing to detect an increased turnout in, in rural areas in particular. And they backed Trump even more strongly in 2016. And uh, the polls may also have failed to pick up on new and infrequent voters who decided to show up this election day and, and they voted for Trump. And that has to do something with, you know, like how they define a, a likely voter. But once again, you know, they're taking a serious look at, at how they do these polls. Yeah, there are people that are writing to me saying you guys should just stop using them. <laughs> I mean, I do want to point out with Baldwin Wallace, while their margins were wrong, they did four states this year instead of just Ohio. And and if if in the end Biden takes Pennsylvania, which is looking kind of likely at the moment, then they're going to be right about the three states going for Biden and Ohio going for Trump. They just had the numbers completely wrong. And and we based a lot of stories on those numbers. The, right. the other point I want to make is I, I heard from somebody yesterday that said, hey, Mr. Quinn, I think the reason that you're seeing this is where our privacy is challenged everywhere in our lives and people are not talking to pollsters because they're trying to protect their privacy. So you're not you're no longer getting a willingness of large swaths of the population to be willing to share what's on their minds because privacy is under siege everywhere else with all of the, uh, the tech giants, yeah. which is an interesting element. Laura Johnson. That's a real problem. Well, that's what Anyways, I wanted to yeah. ask. I wanted to say, do you think that people just lied? Like either they were intentionally trying to mislead pollsters or because they don't like polls or they didn't want to admit who they were voting for or why? Or maybe they just didn't, the people that were, that were the surprise didn't talk to pollsters so that the only population you got was of people, the, the people who were willing to talk 
were the ones that largely were going to vote the way the pollsters found. But a huge swath of the population that was voting for Trump didn't talk to them. I mean, there, there's some speculation today that there are still people that support Trump, but they're embarrassed to say so because their friends beat up on him. I thought that was less of a factor this time than four years ago, because I think the Trumpsters all feel affirmed by the last four years. But but who knows? I, I All I know is <laughs> that going forward as journalists, we got to cut it out. I mean, we, you know, I, Chris Wernaski was saying the other day, look, when did polling come about in the 1930s? How do we cover it before then? Good question. <laughs> so, right. We, we clearly characterize this as a competitive state because the campaigns um, and I'm sure their internal polling showed this, too. And that's why they both sides had all these last minute visits and put resources into Ohio. There must have been a reason for that. Right. Yeah, I just I don't. How did we screw this up? How did we when did we change our minds? I mean, I remember speaking about this really strongly four years ago, like polling's dead. You can't trust it anymore. (laughs) It was right after the election. There was this big polling convention where they all got together and, you know, oh, we got to change it. We got to change it. And it's like, what changed? We're because it's just (laughs) as wrong as it was last time. So we, we just have to. And we look, it's easy news stories, right? The poll comes out, latest poll shows. It's really yeah. easy to to do those stories. But man, oh, man, we owe right. it to the community to say, you know, this is what the poll says. This is the 500 times they got it wrong in the last five years. So take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> I thought it was funny. Andrew Tobias, who did this story, quoted a, an Ohio political operative as saying, my job over the next four years is to forget everything I've ever been taught. Yeah, but they, but what's the path forward then? I mean, if people I, don't I mean, want to tell you what they're thinking, which which they apparently don't, then you can't get a read. I don't yeah. know. It's it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I, it's, I, you know, maybe there's <laughs> ways you can mine Twitter and Facebook <laughs> and use big data. You know, maybe somebody can go into the last four years of what's been going on or the last month of what's online uh, using cloud searches and things like that. Maybe there's a way to do do sentiment indexing off of Google searches and things like that. But asking people what they're going to do. It's a waste of time. (laughs) You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How many school taxes in Cuyahoga County passed Tuesday and were any of the votes close? Laura Johnston, there was a school tax in my community that's so close, I'm not sure how it ended. Same for Jane Cahoon. We live in the same community. Mm -hmm. What happened with school taxes? So, yeah, uh, five of the seven tax increases in Cuyahoga County passed. And yours, the Cleveland Heights University Heights uh, City School District, is razor thin, but it's winning. And officials are remaining cautiously optimistic. So it was as it stands, it was like 14,598 votes for and 14,533 votes against. So. That is very close. Uh, a tax increase for new schools failed in Parma. It has been nearly a decade since that district passed an increase. Richmond Heights couldn't pass an operating levy. Officials there say they've lost a lot of state funding because of vouchers that allow students to go to private or charter schools because their schools are so bad. 
Regardless, Cuyahoga is doing a whole lot better than the rest of the state when it comes to passing. Only 36% of tax increases passed throughout the state. There's a lot of blame on the coronavirus, one for costing districts money in virtual technology and added safety features, and then two for the recession that's making voters really cautious about adding to their tax bill. Jane Coon, when I went to bed on election night, the the tax had failed by 35 votes with 100% of the precincts in. When I got up, it was up by 67. I realized they had counted the the late arriving uh, absentee ballots. Yeah, with ballot. tens of thousands of ballots cast. Yeah, so I, I, it's fast. I mean, this is one. You know, I, my wife and I both voted for it. We support school taxes. I think it's important to, for a community to do that. I understand why people don't. It's expensive, and we have very high taxes in Cleveland Heights. But this could come down to one or two people going to the polls, making the difference when they do the recount. This is as close as it gets. Yeah, it's pretty. It's a nail biter. Then then we do have Cleveland schools, which passed resoundingly. We've talked about yes. that before, but we did talk to Eric Gordon yesterday uh, to, and he you could you could sense the relief that he felt that they can continue to move forward. And he what I love about Eric Gordon is he's always just as honest as can be. He said what I heard in the campaign is we're not doing it fast enough. Yes, people are happy to see the districts improving, but it needs to be faster. It needs to be bigger progress. And he takes that to heart. It's uh, he's one of those. Rare and at the leaders. same time, he said they're going to be cautious. They're not going to go ahead and spend all this money all at once. They're they're going to be prudent with the money. Yeah, he's just he's one of those people in Cleveland that you're I don't know if anybody else could do what he does. We talked earlier about the piece that uh, Layla wrote about him. Um, trying to persevere through the coronavirus. And it's just very touching. He's trying to do fight the good fight. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What will a consultant looking at the West Side market in Cleveland aim to do? Chris Renaski, we talked about this a few weeks ago. There was a move to get a consultant in there. The downtown councilman, Kerry McCormick, put a stop to it because he didn't feel like there was enough discussion. Suddenly, this thing's on the move. Right. So the council approved the city... Uh, to pay a consultant uh, $137,000 to sort of review and make recommendations about how to make the West Side market viable. The move is an effort by Jackson and his administration to address a lot of complaints about the condition of the building and, and concerns over its future. You know, I mean, you've seen a lot of vendors, like longtime vendors, leave the West Side market complaining for, you know, reasons about how much is, how expensive it is and, and things like that. But the consultant will first review the sort of physical aspects of the building, identifying improvements that need to be made as the city prepares to upgrade the building. That work includes $5.6 million in improvements to address problems with its electrical system, its plumbing, and upgrades to the vendor stalls and improvements to the food prep areas that are used by vendors in the basement below the main market floor. Ultimately, they're going to spend about $15 million to improve the West Side market. And um, you're right, this was something that Carrie McCormick, whose ward does include the market, sort of brought up during a committee hearing. And so he's going to get it. So, you know, we're, it, you know, I, I think it's a, I think it's a good move by the city. I think, I, I think it's an asset. I think a lot of people would, would probably say that, that it's a, a, you know, I wouldn't say mismanaged, but there, there is a way that it could be utilized better and, you know, bolstered to sort of look toward the future. I, I, you know, there have been calls, to turn it over to a nonprofit that the city doesn't, you shouldn't be in this business or whatever, but it looks like the city is taking a step to sort of shore it up for, you know, the immediate future.
They got to do something because it's not working in the way it's done now. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. After surviving the third rainiest October in recorded history in Northeast Ohio, how can we not talk about the weather we are seeing to start November? Laura Johnston, this is great. Yeah, no, I'm not. I am all about this. They need to kick off the first day of November was miserable. I was at a kid's soccer game wearing like five layers and freezing as the wind gusted and snow blew. But. We are getting a payoff now. It's looking like we're going to be in the 70s and sunny for the next five days straight through Monday. Nothing but sunshine. So it's going to be a beautiful weekend to marvel at the foliage, you know, have a round of golf, barbecue. I think I'm going to get the paddleboard back out of the basement and go for one last ride. So Really? You're going to get on the water? I'm impressed. Yeah, I mean... Why not? We got a long winter ahead of us, so we need to enjoy every minute of this weekend. So I don't even know if this is uh, politically correct anymore, but we used to call these periods that we get in the fall Indian summer. And we thought we had that a couple of weeks ago, but this is it, right? Five days of this, this, this. Well, and I think, I mean, as, as much as that name is probably, yeah, not PC at this point, you have to have a freeze first for Indian summer. So I think this is, I mean, this is the definition of it. We, we, we had that. And now, I mean, a lot of areas did, I don't know that I ever froze at my house quite yet, but so yeah, it's, it's going to be gorgeous. All right. We're going to have to talk to our social team about seeking <laughs> a new politically correct name for this gorgeous period that comes after the first frost. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right. Good podcast. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jane. Thank you to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. It audience keeps on growing. It's a good sign. We'll be back tomorrow to wrap up the week of news.